Great Britain includes a lot of wild and rugged offshore islands. Coming up, Martin Clunes recommends a few you might try to visit. They are really woolly, you know, really... It's harsh living out there, and you meet the people and they're tough. You wouldn't want to fight them. Eating out in Italy can be an all-night affair. Fred Plotkin reminds us to allow time for dessert and conversation with your fellow diners as part of the evening's entertainment. And I spent two more hours with strangers who became friends just talking about this particular tiramisu. You make friendships that way. Or walk off the calories on a street food tour in Florence. I want you to try the pastries when they're warm out of the oven. I want you to try the schiacciata when it's still fresh. And also before the locals, grab all of it because it runs out pretty quickly. Everything's very time sensitive when it comes to food. Stay with us as we enjoy the famous foods of Italy and the lesser known isles of Britain in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. There's just something about an island that draws our attention. Last week on Travel with Rick Steves, we got to know how the locals revere the Nordic heritage and stone monuments of Orkney off the north coast of Scotland. In a moment, Martin Clunes recommends more of the offshore islands of Britain that are well worth a visit. You'll probably be hungry before the hour's over. Fred Plotkin returns to talk about the substantial pleasures of Italian cuisine and the book he and I just co-authored. And Italian-American tour guide Tony Mazzaglia points out the tasty highlights of Florence on the walking food tours that she hosts. Let's start out on the wet and windy fringes of Britain with Martin Clunes. You probably know him as the star of the Doc Martin series that has aired on public TV in the United States and on streaming services. They just wrapped up its final season last year. Martin's also known for hosting nature and travel documentaries on ITV. It started with a three-parter called Islands of Britain. He visited fabled islands from the northernmost lighthouse on Muckle to a lonely helipad on Bishop Rock off the tip of Cornwall. Martin joins us from the Travel with Rick Steves archives and the warm comfort of his home studio. Thanks for having me. So what is it about the small islands that made you want to go to all the trouble to actually show them in a documentary? I don't know. There's something just, to me, innately fascinating about an island. If you looked at two lakes and one had an island in it and the other didn't, you'd be interested in the one with the island, I think. Sure would. Um, and there's, there's something about island living as well that's extraordinary. And that I didn't know until I went, till I made You know, Doc series. Martin is set in Port Isaac, and that's a small, remote village in a remote part it of Britain. It kind of is. But you're taking yeah. it one step further. It's almost like you thought, hey, Port Isaac's cool, and then you can go <laughs> to the extreme. Let's go out to the islands of, what are they, silly, out there past. They make Port Wind look like uh, the, the center of civilization. Oh, yeah, they really <laughs> do, yeah. Tell us about the islands. Give us an overview. They were all different, obviously. They, they had their own characteristics, but there were things that came up again and again there was there was a sort of massively strong sense of community all enveloping in tragedy and joy you know if there was anything to be celebrated they'd all muster tragedy and joy small sparsely populated places i mean these are tiny tiny populations where mm. they all probably wear many different hats as they keep their communities going oh yeah yeah they do yeah and they've all got unique stories to tell you know but it is interesting the the commonalities. Well, let's let's go on a just a quick blitz around the British Islands. First of all, way off, we think of Land's End, you know, that's the southwest tip of England. A lot of tourists mm. go there, but Land's End is just a springboard to get out to some islands farther to the southwest. What are those? Those are the Isles of Scilly. I think there's about Scilly. four or five. And yeah, they're mythical, magical places. If you get the weather right, they have the um, 
the World Gig Rowing Championships. And gigs are, I think they're quite a Cornish thing, but maybe they have them all around the English coastal towns. They're six rowers, I think, in a heavy wooden boat. And we, we stumbled across, the first time I went to the Isles of Scilly, they had this World Championship. And everywhere you looked, there was a team of these boats in the water. It was extraordinary. And the islands are small. And What are the boats called? Gig? Gigs? Gigs. G-I-G. I hadn't gig heard of racing. that. So they got yeah. gig racing on the island of Scilly. Port Isaac has a gig racing team. I'm the president or vice president or okay. something. Okay. Well, that's something to look for. How do you get out there? I mean, I remember you took a helicopter to one of these islands. Yeah, a lot of helicopters out there. Yes, you can get out there. There's a ferry. Uh, it takes quite a while to, to sail. I think mm-hmm. it goes from Newquay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they've just stopped the helicopter running out there that you used to be able to hop over from Newquay. But I've been cut off there on a photo shoot once by the fog when yeah. the helicopters can't get out. And we had to get, I think we had to collect our daughter from school. So we just had to charter a boat to drive us through oh the fog. My goodness. So that's the Isles of Scilly on the southwest tip. What about uh, halfway between England and France near Normandy, uh, Isle of Sark? The Channel Islands. Yeah. Oh, they're lovely. They're worth a visit. Yeah, Guernsey, Jersey. And my favorite is Sark, which has no cars. No cars? No cars, no streetlights, lots of bicycles. Now, tiny population, what, about 600 people live on Sark and they have their own parliament that goes to some quirky kind of government? Uh, yes, they have. Well, they just, um, they, that just changed. But it was the seigneur, had the droit de seigneur, where he was technically allowed the virginity of any new bride. <laughs> they just the changed that, huh? But, uh, yeah, he, he gave that up. <laughs> what a rare politician. <laughs> but that's a, that. the point is there, they've got a, sort of a cut-off heritage that can evolve on, on its own track. Yeah, and all, all these islands had kind of curious tales of occupation during the Second World War. Oh, yeah, they'd um, be strategic in the Second World War. Yes. Well, Queen Victoria was mad, built incredible defenses all over. She was convinced we were going to be attacked from there, and then she was oh. sort of proved right later on. Okay, so you got Sark kind of halfway between Normandy and England, and then way beyond Scotland, halfway between, really, between Scotland and Norway, you've got these islands that have a mix of Norse and Scottish culture. Yes. Talk about that. Yeah, oh, they're just, um, they are really woolly, you know, really... It's harsh living out there, and you meet the people, and they're tough. You wouldn't want to fight them. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, yeah, there's a lot of Viking stock up so there. So they embrace their, their Viking heritage? Yeah, very much. Yeah, and they keep it alive. I mean, I think a lot of it's guesswork, but there's a lot of, um, you know, old stones and stuff. You can see how the Vikings lived, and we know how the Vikings lived. Yeah. But they've got North Sea oil now, so they're, they're pretty blessed economically. <laughs> you've got rich Vikings. They've got some of the nicest tarmac you'll ever see. The roads are fantastic out there because of the oil industry. <laughs> the Shetland Islands, huh? Oh, the Shetlands are amazing. And yeah. the Hebrides, and yeah. The Hebrides is on the opposite side, uh, the west side of Scotland. And uh, you talked, you, you visited an island famous for its whiskey. Oh, Isla, yeah. Isla, yeah, right. It's pronounced Isla, but it's spelled Isla, but it's, yes. Isla. Oh, yeah, that was great. Tell us about that, because those guys were so proud of their whiskey. They are so proud of their whiskey, as is the world, you know. I mean, it's, um, yeah. God knows how many millions of pounds go through that little island, but hmm. there's something in the water, they say, although <laughs> all their whiskeys taste so different. They're all very unique. So they got their North Sea oil in the Shetland Islands, but in the Hebrides, it's the whiskey, the Scottish whiskey, and the traditional culture is pretty strong there. I didn't realize that there are actually communities where a lot of people speak the Scottish Gaelic. Oh, yeah, yeah. And well, and then there's, I think there's another language of the islands as well that may be lost now, but, uh, you know, because they, the Shetlands, they're, they're nearer Norway than Glasgow. Right. 
So they would have that, that mix of cultures. And then one island that's really quirky and really proud with its own sort of heritage, of course, is the Isle of Man between Ireland and England. Talk about the Isle of Man. Yes, that's a curious place. The Isle of Man, um, it took a big hit when cheap travel to France and Spain, ah. you know, the charter flights came. Yeah. Because every, a lot of people who like to go overseas would get the ferry over to the Isle of Man, which has lots of lovely beaches and had lots of sort of old sort of yeah. be- uh, piers along there. And, and then it took a real pounding. Suddenly nobody went. Um, and they reinvented themselves as a sort of banking, I don't understand how these things mm-hmm. work, but a sort of banking center and m- huge sums of money being filtered through there, not always with the best of intentions. Well, either. I guess you got to roll with the times. I, I get the sense in Blackpool also and in Brighton, those were very popular when there weren't cheap flights down to the Costa del Sol in yeah. Spain. But now working class people can take their vacation and find some sunshine. I was always impressed how... English people could go to Blackpool and sit on the beach in a drizzle and, and act like it's sunny. <laughs> That's fun for us. <laughs> it's, it's a soft weather, you say, don't you? <laughs> but uh, the Isle of Man has a, a special kind of uh, quirkiness. Martin Clunes is best known in America for his starring role on the Doc Martin television series. It aired its final episode on Christmas 2022 on ITV in Britain. Martin has also hosted ITV documentaries about dogs, horses, lions, and lemurs. He lives on a farm in Dorset. After filming The Islands of Britain, Martin also hosted travel documentaries about the islands of Australia, America, and the Pacific. They should be available on British TV streaming services or on YouTube. He's pointing out some of the remarkable smaller islands he's visited that surround Great Britain right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Martin, when we think about all these islands that surround Britain, what do they have in common? What did you sort of take away from the documentary you made? By the way, you can watch the documentary if you just go to YouTube and, and search it. But uh, what do you take away from the the people here and the communities? And maybe what can we learn from them? Their island, because I grew up in a sort of bland suburb, not bland, really nice leafy suburb of uh, London called Wimbledon, where the tennis happens. But it doesn't really, you know, you're like, oh, those guys from Wimbledon, they're so... You know, there's nothing to us, really. But the identity of of the communities on those islands, that's that's what they all have. They all stand tall and they stand together through thick or thin. Because they could all, they have the wherewithal to leave. They could go to London and try to yep. find a job there. But Yeah, it's not always easy for them at all. Yeah, they put up with inefficiencies and hardship in order to eke out an existence on these rocks out in the sea and uh, yeah. their communities. What do you think the reward is for them? I think that's a reward in itself. I think belonging to that uh, mm-hmm. that, that community because they know that it's a strength they have over other communities. You know, they know that they're it's it's sort of mighty with them. I think. And there's probably sort of a a loneliness and lack of community in a big city, fast material world that they might embrace and appreciate in their small town mm. island worlds. Yeah, I bet. All right, Chris is on the line in uh, Valencia, California. Chris, thanks for your call. Hello, thank you, Rick. Thank you, Martin. Um, I'm a bit of an Anglophile, and I enjoyed your Islands of Britain series, Martin. Um, And often um, when planning vacations, we tend to look to destinations abroad. And something he mentioned in in the series was, you know, we have these hidden gems closer to home, and often we tend to plan to, you know, take our vacations somewhere else. And just curious, of the places that he's yet to travel to, is there one beyond Britain and one within Britain that someday he'd like to visit? Oh, that's interesting. Nice. Um, yeah, there's, I'd like to do a lot more Scotland. I'd like to see a lot more of Scotland. I don't really know the 
eastern side of Scotland. I know the west, and I know the western islands, and I know a lot of the islands now. But, you know, I've got a couple of Scottish horses, and I find myself spending more and more time in Scotland, and uh, we love it for holidays and trips. And it's an amazing place to drive through. You know, it's really empty and wild. Um, that that would do me. And, wow, the rest of the world, I'm fascinated to go to Japan, and I'm hatching a plan to get myself there. I used to say my number one destination that I hadn't been to was Madagascar. And then a couple of years ago, I went and I made a program about the uh, lemurs there, and I got to go there. And hmm. It's still one of the, my favorite places I've ever been, and I would recommend anybody to go there while it's still there. I'm waiting for Doc Martin Does Japan. I think that sounds fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, thanks for your call. Great. Thank you, Rick, and thank you, Martin. Nice to speak to you, Chris. Bye. Bye. Well, Martin, thank you so much from all of your fans in the United States for the work you've done with Doc Martin, and uh, thank you also for taking us on a little tour of the many (laughs) islands that are a part of the British islands. Well, thank you. Thanks very much. It's been nice talking to you. A visit to Italy includes that tasty bonus of endless local food specialties wherever you wander. We'll explore Italy for food lovers with Fred Plotkin, next on Travel with Rick Steves. As an honor for promoting Italian culture around the world, the government of Italy awarded Fred Plotkin with its highest honor in 2015. In a rare move for a non-Italian, Fred was named a Cavaliere. It's like a knighthood there for being what they called one of the most admired and esteemed experts on Italy. Fred Plotkin has also been one of our favorite guests over the years on Travel with Rick Steves for his knowledge and appreciation of all things about Italy and for revealing the regional specialties that make eating anywhere in Italy such a delight. It's been my honor to work with Fred as we co-authored a remake of his landmark guide, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Fred's with us right now from his home in New York City to rouse our appetites and to celebrate the release of our new collaboration, Italy for Food Lovers. Fred, buongiorno. Ciao, Ricardo. Come va? Ottimo, te? (laughs) I'm doing great, and it's always fun to talk with you. Likewise. uh, Fred, a lot of people don't have the joy of thumbing through a book that they've written for the first time. When you received Italy for the Food Lovers and you thumbed through it, you put a lot of work into this thing. I mean... What were your what were your thoughts? Well, you know, to my knowledge, I'm not the father of any baby that I know of who would now be an adult, but I am the father of a number of books. And when the book arrives in the mail, it really is like being presented with your child because you have invested all of your love and passion and care and nourishment into creating a book. Fred, I love that metaphor of having a baby and to carry on with that metaphor I think we were pregnant with that book for a long time. And also, it's got an older cousin. It's got your book, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, which was your go-to book for Italian food lovers for for decades, literally. You know, I love the way you started our book. Right on the opening, you, you put this quote in here. This is a guide to Italian food, but it's also a book about the Italian people, their ingenuity, their traditions, and their evangelical zeal for quality. It's about the sensuality of Italy, expressed through its food, wine, and culinary philosophy. It'll lead you to the Italy that you can see, taste, smell, touch, and hear. 
where flavors, fragrances, scenery, art, music, and people are all sources of pleasure, known in Italy as piacere. I love that word, piacere, Fred. That's a central operating principle for Italian life, pleasure. And I don't mean mindless pleasure. I don't mean hedonism. But I mean really savoring every single thing, whether it's a conversation with a friend, whether it's a cup of espresso, whether it's a beautiful piece of scenery, whether it's an opera, whether it's a beautifully prepared bowl of pasta, all of that can be savored. And that's something the Italians know to do. And maybe I was predisposed to that. But when I got to Italy, actually 50 years ago, I was awakened to that in a a radical way that changed my life. Well, you know, I think a lot of Americans can benefit from that in their travels. There's a a favorite quote of yours is, uh, I can I can say it in English, the time you spend eating a decent meal is never wasted. True. A tavola non si invecchia is a way of saying you don't get old, older at the table. Right. Time stands still. Well, and there's something about, as a traveler, to go to Italy and to be part of that scene, to be immersed in the culture, and the, the way you, you, you feel the pulse of that culture can be by eating there. You know, a lot of us grow up eating Italian in the United States, but we have quite an adjustment when we get to Italy. Can you put your finger on the difference between eating Italian in the United States and eating Italian in Italy? There is what we call Italian-American, and that's a wonderful cuisine. I don't want to knock it because I grew up on that and I love it, but that's not Italian food. Similarly, there is food now in America that tries to evoke Italian flavors. You find this, for example, near San Francisco. You find it in places with communities that have the kind of agriculture that could approximate parts of Italy. But Italian food, in other words, of Italy, is really strictly local. So that you and I might say Italian, but what we mean is cotoletta alla milanese from Milan, spaghetti with tomato sauce from Naples, beautiful fish dishes from Sicily, a fantastic coffee from Trieste or Torino. Uh, pesto is only really from Liguria, which is Genoa and the Italian Riviera. Pesto is, you may find it elsewhere in Italy, but it's not from elsewhere in Italy. It's only from Liguria. In fact, we might not even be aware of that when we order something on the menu. It says alla Milanese or something like that. And and what we're doing is we're we're embracing a regional specialty, aren't we? We are, and I'm not saying that they can't make that dish in Rome. Mm-hmm. But I would save cotoletto la milanese for Milan and carbonara for Rome. I wouldn't have carbonara in Milan unless I were making it myself in my own kitchen with a Roman standing by. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and our guest right now is Fred Plotkin. That means it's time to have our appetites stoked. We're exploring what makes eating in Italy such a special treat. Fred and I collaborated on updating his landmark book. It was called Italy for the Gourmet Traveler into our new title, and that's called Italy for Food Lovers. Fred also hosts live arts and culture interviews on the Idagio platform. The show is called Fred Plotkin on Fridays, and it's Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Fred, you were mentioning how, uh, you know, you like to to kind of be a cultural chameleon when you go from region to region and eat what the locals are eating, and I think that's an important thing for us to remember when we are traveling in Italy. Italians don't eat Italian they eat regional. Um, eating ethnic in Italy means eating from some region uh, apart from your own region, I suppose. And that is even related to this um, 
intense regionality of ingredients that, that you see when you have these legal designations. What is DOP? Denominazione di origine protetta. That means um, that a food, is, it has a somewhereness. It is from a place, from a culture, from a soil, from an animal that has been raised in a certain way, from a grape that can only be grown in certain soil and certain exposures and at certain yields. The Italians were very good at bureaucracy even before joining the European Union. But what DOP is about, in fact, is upholding a higher standard than the European Union because Europe wants to be more generic. So, for example, the region of Trentino in the Northeast grew all kinds of varieties of apples. But when the European Union and Italy merged, Germany and Austria wanted only certain kinds of apples. So many of the native varieties were uprooted in Trentino to supply the German and Austrian markets. Italians pushed back at that by saying, we need to protect our unusual native varieties. And that's how the DOP came about. Is that a legal thing, like you can only call champagne champagne if it comes from that part of France and Italy has to call it Prosecco, you know? Is, is that a legal requirement to protect regions? It is because it's also a way of making something. I've seen people get around it a little bit by saying this is the champagne method, but they can't call it champagne. It's kind of, it's uh, essentially the same thing, but protected. If you think about a couple of uh, ingredients that really are, you know, they, they just obviously come from here, and that's where you got to have it on your checklist when you're there. I, I think of mozzarella, for example, or wild boar. Where would those be best enjoyed culturally? Well, mozzarella is important to talk about because it is from the region of Campania, which is Naples. It's also produced in nearby Basilicata and parts of Puglia, and, and that's legal, so to speak, in Italian law. But the original mozzarella came not from dairy cows, but from water buffalo that have been there since ancient times. And there's a tangy flavor in the mozzarella. Now, I mention this because... The European Union said, we can take Dutch milk or Danish or German milk and make mozzarella in Schleswig-Holstein. No, you can't. I'm right. sorry. It's just not tangy right. No, it's just not <laughs> the same thing. Now, there can be the equivalent of that. I live in New York State. We produce more mozzarella than any American <laughs> state, but it's not Italian mozzarella. Right. It's Italian style. So in Italy, you can purchase in Torino or in Puglia, mozzarella that's made in Campania. It comes in little containers and it's always packed in water and you need to eat it very quickly because it's very perishable and it's wonderful. But frankly, there is nothing like having it in Campania, especially right. in Naples. And that, that relates, Fred, to this concept of abinamento, matching flavors, because if you have mozzarella that's so good in Campania, I believe tomatoes are really good in Campania also. And what a beautiful thing for the, a, a salad that would mix those two ingredients. One of my very favorite meals in Italy, and it's not in our book simply because you covered Sorrento, but I will mention this to all listeners, um, is a restaurant called Aurora, A-U-R-O-R-A, which is on the Piazza Tasso in Sorrento. And to look at it, it's nothing special, but they have fresh mozzarella, they have smoked mozzarella, they have different styles of mozzarella. And my perfect mm. meal in that restaurant is to get a sampling, an abinamento, of six different mozzarellas 
and six different vegetables and lay them out in front of me on a plate and just compare this artichoke with that smoky flavor of mozzarella versus this artichoke with the fresh cow's mozzarella, then trying a tomato, then trying zucchini that's been preserved in, in mm. vinegar. And that's, it's one of the great meals. And it's really, it's just cheese and vegetables, but at its zenith. Oh, Fred Plotkin's with us from his home in Manhattan on Travel with Rick Steves as we celebrate the culinary pleasures of Italy and the release of the book we co-authored called Italy for Food Lovers. Over the years, you've heard Fred describe the seasonal local foods you find all across Italy. This new book updates his classic Italy for the Gourmet Traveler for each of Italy's 20 regions. It also includes our 100 favorite restaurant recommendations, 50 of mine and 50 of Fred's. There's more at ricksteves.com radio. Fred, when we're thinking about this abinamento, matching flavors and textures, a lot of people, they just love, in Italy, cantaloupe and a thin slice of salty prosciutto. Isn't that a great example of abinamento? Yes, and you said textures and flavors. I would also add temperatures because oh, when something is yeah. cold, hot, or tepid, the sensation is different in the nose and in the mouth. So. I think I'm the one who coined a term years ago, a culinary geographer. In other words, why is a particular ingredient or food better in one place than another? And most Italians will tell you that the best cantaloupe comes from Mantua, Mantova, in Lombardy. It's where Lombardy borders Emilia-Romagna. And there's something about the soil that produces this musky, fleshy, sweet complex flavor of cantaloupe that Italians are willing to pay more for that cantaloupe, melone in Italian, because of its exquisite flavor and texture, and you have it at room temperature or slightly chilled. Then, nearby to Mantova is Parma, which produces a very famous prosciutto, which is air-cured ham with just a little bit of salt. It's cured usually for 14 months or sometimes a little longer. And the air that courses through Parma, or actually the town of Longhirano, is different from the air that courses through San Daniele in, in Friuli, Venezia, Giulia, or Carpegna in the Marche. So therefore, the flavors of those different prosciutti, prosciuttos, is slightly different. So what I would do is I would have the constant of the melon from Mantova, and then have three different examples of prosciutto, Parma, San Daniele, Carpegna, and use the melon as a standard and the prosciuttos as something different. And this is how we develop our palate. This is not foodie. I'm not a foodie. This is just sensuality. It's pleasure. <laughs> sensuality. It's... You know, and I like sensuality as much as the next person, but it just more. breaks my heart more, yeah. <laughs> okay, more. <laughs> I won't argue with that. But it breaks my heart when I talk with you, Fred, and I think of all the mediocre meals I've had in Italy when, of course, you can't have a, a, you know, a life-changing meal every time, but all the opportunities I've missed just by not having the bar a little higher. You, can, you don't need to go hog wild on the menu, but just to go to a place that can serve the cantaloupe with the prosciutto correctly. You know, our book, Italy for Food Lovers, it's a, you know, it's a practical manual for enjoying Italian cuisine. And in here, we've got travel tips. And uh, one of the tips, is, for example, is simply knowing 
the key words you're looking for. What are these words in Italian that we should know when we're looking at a menu? Well, in a menu, but also in the market, one of my favorites is Nostrano, N-O-S-T-R-A-N-O, or sometimes Nostrana if the object is feminine. And that's a wonderful word. It simply means ours. Mm-hmm. So that, for example, in Liguria, you might see something that will say Basilico Nostrano, our basil. So in other words, it does not come from 10 valleys away. It comes from right here. And people want it from right here. In Mantua, you would always say Melone Nostrano because it's Mm -hmm. their melon. And it's not arrogance. It's just, it's a guarantee of quality and an awareness of distinction. And I could multiply this to thousands of products. For example, in Padua, there's a fantastic market in Padua. Mm -hmm. You will see hens that only are from Padua that are a little more scrawny, frankly, than some of the other hens we see, certainly the big fat American birds. But these are so much more intense in flavor. So you would roast it or perhaps make a broth with it. And the flavor of the hen, the Galina Nostrana from Padua, is really something fantastic. So if you see that word, it's not advertising. It's a guarantee, it's an assurance that the people take great pride. Fred, it is so fun to talk to you. It just always stokes my appetite. We're out of time, but I just want to thank you for the hard work you put into this book. And uh, it's very gratifying to be able to share decades of appreciation of Italian cuisine into a a package like this book. And and I'm just uh, so thankful to be able to offer that to our travelers. Let's, Let's just close with that. You mentioned earlier in our discussion a tavola non si invecchia. At the table, one one does not age. Pardon right. my Italian. It's kind of like you freeze in place because you're so enjoying the food and the moment and the sociability. Well, and give me an example, of, Fred. Yeah. Give me an example that you remember of uh, uh, at the table, one does not age. I was once at a trattoria in Treviso in northeastern Italy called Tony del Spin, S-P-I-N. Treviso is the town that invented the famous dessert, tiramisu. And Tony Del Spin makes a famous example of tiramisu. And I had my meal and I was eating alone and people were around me at other tables and looking at me and noticing that I was enjoying what I was eating. But apparently the facial version of an orgasm overtook me as I was tasting the tiramisu. And people came and sat down with me and started asking me questions about the tiramisu. Is this the first time you've had it? Do you know that tiramisu is from Treviso? Do you notice how bitter the chocolate is? Do you know how rich the coffee is? Do you notice the mascarpone? Each person would give me their own experience of the mascarpone. And I spent two more hours with strangers who became friends just talking about this particular tiramisu. You make friendships that way. You really do. And this was just over dessert. That is so Italian and such a beautiful example, and that's something we can all strive for in our travels in Italy and beyond. Fred Plotkin, thanks so much for joining us, and buon appetito. Thank you, Rick. Fred and I talk about the homesickness Italians often feel for the sound of the church bells closest to where they live. It's in a short extra to today's interview, and it's on our website at ricksteves.com radio. And like any classic Italian dinner, we're not finished eating yet. 
Next, an American who returned to her family roots in Italy and stayed, walks us around the Tuscan culinary traditions you'll find on the streets of Florence. Bon appetito. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One of the most popular new activities in travel anywhere these days is food tours. When I do my research in Europe, I generally schedule a regular guide for my daytime activities and a food guide for the evening. And from Seattle to Havana to Reykjavik to Athens, some of my favorite cultural and travel experiences have been on food tours. Tony Mazzaglia runs food tours in Florence, and I thought I'd invite her onto our show to take us on a little walk through Florence and nibble our way from start to finish. Ciao, Tony. Ciao, Rick. Nice of you to join us. Hey, tell us how a North Carolina girl 25 years ago ended up in Florence running food tours. Well, my my first experience or my first journey to Italy was in 1997 with your book in hand. I didn't speak a word of Italian. And I was actually just going to stay in Italy briefly and, and have a study abroad in Spain. And when I got to Italy, I fell in love with the culture and the food and actually found family in Sicily I didn't know existed. And so by the time I got to, to Spain for my study abroad, I decided I preferred to be in Italy where I'm, nobody expects you to dance on a regular basis. And <laughs> I was allergic to shellfish, so I just figured I was better off in Italy than Spain. Uh, I just fell in love with Italy. And now you're running a, a food tour business called Taste Florence. And uh, just talk about a little bit the the general scene for food business. There's a lot of food tour companies. Oh, yeah. uh, you can find food guides. I, I, I look for that. I, I booked you to be my guide, and we had a wonderful evening together just last year when I was in Florence researching. It was fun. That was really fun. I learned <laughs> so much. I just think it's a great dimension of culture anywhere in our travels, as I mentioned. Uh, without specifically talking about your company, just in general, what are the variety of companies that are available and what are the options that travelers have to, to be able to connect with a, a local food expert in their travels? Oh, there are, are absolutely dozens of food tours running now in Florence. When I started 15, almost 16 years ago, there weren't that many. I would say maybe a few in the major cities. And now uh, you have almost too much of a choice. So you do want to do your research and make sure you have a reputable guide and company and, um, you know, read through the reviews, make sure they didn't start just a few weeks ago, that they've been doing it for a while. Mm -hmm. You can go anything from a morning food tour, which is more of my specialty, or an evening food tour, cocktail tours, cooking classes. Of course, you could also go out of the city and go on a wine tour uh, there's just so many fantastic possibilities. When you, when you talk about a four-hour or a, a morning tour, it's kind of the basic tour, and you, you, you cobble together, what, five or six or seven different hole-in-the-wall artisan little fun foodie corners, and you, you kind of have an ensemble of experiences. How does that work? Yes. Uh, the reason I do my tours in the morning is because uh, a large part of these the tastings are in the market and in bakeries, places that are at their best before 2 or 3 p.m. I want you to try the pastries when they're warm out of the oven. I want you to try the schiacciata when it's still fresh. And also before the locals grab all of it because it runs out pretty quickly. Everything's very time sensitive when it comes to food. Uh, so it's not a, a series of tastings in restaurants, but rather a series of tastings in different small historic shops, mostly owned by family, uh, generation like after that. generation. I like that small and historic and family run in probably in many cases, uh, enthusiasts doing things their parents did and they found their niche yes. and, and they just do what they love. And that is, you know, a bakery or a pastry shop or olive oil or, or whatever they're really into. 
when it comes to a food tour, it it's generally what four hours and cost about a hundred dollars or what? what would yes, you say? yeah, I would say give or take thirty minutes and give or take fifteen dollars, depending on the tour, mm-hmm. the, the age of the participant. Um, my tour does run about four hours, and it is about a hundred dollars. And you should come with an appetite, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. And there's nothing more sad. <laughs> Imagine showing up at ten o'clock or whatever, and you go, "Well, I'm I'm full. I just had a big breakfast." And I always think of it, if I'm budgeting $100 for a food tour, I think, well, $30 of this is just lunch, you know. So you, you oh, yeah. pick that up. And, and then you you get to know a local guide. You get to know some other travelers. You get to meet some uh, artisans. And it's a, to me, it's a real education in many dimensions. Uh, let's just walk through it. Take me on, on a four-hour walk through Florence and, and stoke my appetite by describing the stops. I would love to, Rick. My favorite route, I would say, is the San Lorenzo route because that's kind of my stomping ground. And so all the places I go on the food tour are special to me. I know the owners. So it's not just the food and the places that are special, but it's also the people that make these things. So we spend about um, the first half of the tour in the San Lorenzo neighborhood, visiting two bakeries, visiting the central market and having a few tastings within, inside the market. We also visit a wine shop that I adore. And then we we head over towards the Duomo area and have a more formal wine tasting where we're seated and guests have three glasses of wine. We also talk about balsamic vinegars, which are not Florentine. However, they're a huge passion for me. Also olive oil. I should not forget olive oil. And after that, everyone's pretty much stuffed, but there's always room for gelato. So we'll have a gelato. That sounds so much fun, and Mm -hmm. I can see it takes, uh, it's going to take a good four hours, and you're going to leave probably full. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tony Mazzaglia. She's our guest now, and she's an American who first landed in Italy about 25 years ago to discover her roots. And as a student, she lived in the San Lorenzo neighborhood. That's the area around the marketplace we're just talking about. She was studying Italian gastronomy and culture, and now she leads Taste Florence Food Tours, where everybody gets to kind of graze their way across the Renaissance city's bakeries, rosticeries, and food vendors. There's more about Tony and her work online at tasteflorence.com. Tony, take me to the bakery. Who, who are we going to meet at the bakery? Because it must be fun to recognize the people and the passion behind uh, all of the uh, baked goods. I absolutely love the, the bakery. The very first bakery is a savory bakery. They make biscotti and other sweets, but their specialty are breads and scacciata, which is Tuscan flatbread. So we, we go there and we meet the owners who are not a mother and father, like not a mom and pop, but a brother and sister. And they wouldn't be happy about me telling you, but they're both in their 90s. You would never Whoa. guess. Yeah. And what I love is their personalities are so different. The brother is very shy. Uh, the, I'd say he's the baker, but also the delivery boy. Uh, because even though he's at his age, he walks around like a teenager in a little white T-shirt, kind of like uh, James Dean, and delivers the bread all over the neighborhood. His bread is used in the sandwiches in the market, those beautiful beef sandwiches. It's used across the street in the Casa del Vino, that fantastic wine shop. Um, their bread is the heart and soul of that whole neighborhood. And it's for me, it's kind of what connects all the shops in the beginning part of my tour as well. I never thought about that, but the bakery would be a very critical connector for all of these yeah. places that love to serve, um, you know, small plates. Uh, I know the the wine shop you're talking about, Casa del Vino with Gianni. Uh, mm-hmm, he loves you. <laughs> oh, Gianni's just great. And I just, for me, a wine shop is nice because... You can get a glass of, of really good wine where maybe you wouldn't want to buy a whole bottle of it because it'd be expensive, but you can afford a, a glass of a top-end wine. And Gianni knows how to pair it with something really local and really tasty. 
He absolutely does. And you've probably noticed he will not let you get away with doing anything that doesn't make sense traditionally or culturally. (laughs) So if you try to make a sandwich with too many ingredients, he will veto that. (laughs) Yeah, he's a good man to know. And I would imagine Mm -hmm. in your work, you need to have a whole arsenal of these kind of people who are passionate about their little angle on things. Exactly. I I noticed you you go to the Mercato Centrale. Yes. uh, And that's um, all over Europe. You've got these industrial age marketplaces that are struggling to, to survive these days without morphing into more of a food court as well as a market. I think the Mercato Centrale does a very creative job because upstairs you've got this crazy food court and downstairs you've still got quite a traditional market with with all of the fruits and vegetables and and special little local edibles that uh, you would enjoy seeing just like there was no tourism. Yes, it's really a a relief, um, I have to say, after the pandemic and also after the food court opened upstairs because they're actually two separate entities, two different businesses. The food court upstairs, we all thought at first might take away from the the historic shops downstairs, but they're actually bringing in more business because they're better at marketing. And to get upstairs, you have to pass through the downstairs. So it's working out for everyone. And there are some, you know, my favorite places to eat in the market are not upstairs at the food court, which has its place, but Mm -hmm. it's downstairs. And there are some venerable little spots that are just all over Europe. When I think of of a market, I remember... Markets accommodate the needs of local shoppers, people who are looking for a deal, people who know quality, people who are in a hurry, and they have these wonderful little hole-in-the-wall places that are just classics. There's there's one in the market on the ground floor, Nerbone, I think. Yes, I love Nerbone. I'm glad you brought that up. And it's just, you pile in there with all the, the lineup of people, and you just point, and you get a plate full, and you, you got little more than a stool and a little little tiny table to, to crowd into. But boy, you are just surrounded by classic Florentine energy and ambiance. Absolutely. It's a, one of my favorite places to have some of my favorite dishes, the bolito di manzo, the boiled beef sandwich that I love is at Nerbone. You can mm-hmm. have it in other places, but I think theirs is the best. And when they serve it in the winter, their ribolita to me is one of the best in town. Tony, I mentioned the food stalls or the street vendors, and street food's a fun thing in many, many cultures. And in Florence, it seems to have a real strong connection with the past. There are these well, describe it. I mean, you've got these these places that have been parked on that square for probably for at least generations. What are they selling and, and what's the heritage? Actually, Nerbone used to be one of those food carts. And it was there before the Mercato Centrale was constructed. So they are actually two years older than the building. They're the oldest restaurant in the market, but they're actually older than the market. Hmm. So um, they moved inside, which was a good move for weather and things like that. But you'll still see a lot of, they're not food trucks. They're more like a food cart. And those go back well over 100 years. And they serve mostly boiled meats. The, The number one Florentine food or street food to be mentioned is Lampredotto. Lampredotto is a type of tripe, but it's actually the lowest of the four stomachs. And it looks a lot like a type of fish that looked like an eel, um, called lampreda. And lampreda was what the nobles would eat. And so everybody else couldn't afford to eat the lampreda, so they found this food that looked similar, and they named it lampredotto. So when I hear the word, when I go through markets in Italy, a lot of times if it's a very characteristic market, I hear bolito, 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 and and that's what they're selling, isn't it? Yes, and bolito just means boiled. Boiled. Uh, I mean, it's a local delicacy. It goes back to the day when that was a cheap, affordable meal for the working class, right? And now everyone eats it. It's the great unifier. You'll see people, men in business suits. You'll see the guy that's down the street reconstructing the house. You'll see 
pretty much everyone eating lamprodotto. And if that's a little bit exotic for you, if you're not in the mood for a little stomach of cow, <laughs> stewed organs, <laughs> boiled to perfection, uh, porchetta is a, a very easy alternative. Tell us about the porchetta and how we might enjoy that on the streets of Florence. Porchetta is basically a half of a pig or a side of a pig that's deboned, and then they're going to fill it back up with its own liver and then beautiful herbs and spices, um, fennel seeds, rosemary, sage, salt, pepper. And then it's going to be rolled up and tied with the twine, and it's going to be slowly roasted for hours. And mm. that way it gets nice and crackly. What, what is the, you know, when you go to the, um, in the small towns, they have these festivals for the, whatever food is being harvested, sarda or something like that? Hmm. Oh, the sagra. I'm glad you brought up the sagra. That's one of my sagra. favorite things. Oh, yes. I, I was am a, in sagra a sagra girl. And I've, I can still, I, in fact, it was an artichoke sagra, but I can still remember the porchetta. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it was getting sliced. And you could look in it in this wonderful cross-section of meat yes. and greens and herbs and spices. And so good. So we can have that while we're in Florence. Absolutely. Nerbone has that. And it's something you'll find all over Florence in restaurants and delis and and different food carts. Tony Mazzaglia offers food and wine tasting walking tours in the historic center of Florence. She's our guide to the city's cuisine scene right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She includes recommendations to her favorite sites and food venues in the city on her website, tasteflorence.com. Tony also posts photos of Florence on Instagram. We discuss the popularity of the Italy chain of upscale Italian markets, even in Italy, for hungry tourists before the restaurants open for dinner. It's in a short extra to today's interview. You'll find that at ricksteves.com slash radio. Now, something kind of unique to me to, to this part of Italy is bread that's famous for not having <laughs> any salt, right? Yes. What's yes. the deal there? <laughs> Uh, So there's a a few different versions of the story, but the most accepted version of the story is that our bread is unsalted because going back to medieval times, Pisa had power over all the ports of the Mediterranean, and all of the salt that Florence needed was coming in from Pisa. Of course, there's this long-time hatred between the Pisans and the Florentines, Uh and the the salt was um, so highly taxed that they decided, you know what, we need the salt for our cured meats and things like that. Where can we get rid of the salt? the bread. So you know what? You can keep your salt. And then, then they eventually acquired a taste for unsalted bread. If you've uh, lived in Italy, for example, like me for 21 years, and you've dated a plethora of Tuscan men, <laughs> what happens is you go on a vacation with them and they often don't like the bread because it has salt in it and they feel like it is too strong with the foods they're eating. They really love their wow. bread. So you get a little special angle on the local cuisine with the guys you're going out with. <laughs> of course. Hey, um, we're just about out of time, Tony, but it's so great talking with you. And there's a couple of things I just want a local expert to to bounce some ideas off of. Because as a travel teacher, you know, if you recommend something or people are all going to something, you kind of want to make sure it's worthwhile. There's this phenomenon in Florence right now, which is this sandwich kind of ghetto between the Uffizi and Santa Croce. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like you to explain that. Is it what it's cracked up to be, or is it kind of a touristic cop-out? Fantastic question. So the Antico Vinayo, once upon a time, was a tiny little hole in the wall, and they made beautiful crostini and sandwiches. And then I don't know if someone famous got a hold of them or if they figured out how TripAdvisor works or how the ratings and reviews work, but all of a sudden they had 
thousands of reviews, and all of a sudden everybody was standing in line for their sandwiches. I do have to say their sandwiches are delightful and delicious. It just depends on if you're in Florence for a week or two and you have time to stand in line for two hours for a sandwich, go for it. If you don't have more than half a day, please don't spend your whole half a day, even though I respect that because I'm all about food. (laughs) But at that point, I would rather you go to like one of the nice little wine shops like the Casa del Vino or Nuvoli and actually sit down and eat something or or soak in some culture. I think they figured out the TripAdvisor thing and they got into this herd mentality somehow. And right now, you don't even need the address. You'll, 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 You'll find the density of people munching these sandwiches gets thicker as you get closer to the street. And now it's hard to find the original shop because everybody on that street is selling the same thing. Exactly. What I I don't like Mm -hmm. is just everybody in their gym shorts is sitting around munching on these sandwiches and it's just it's just a different kind of scene that I think is kind of embarrassing for Florence. But uh, I agree. it's part of the scene, and uh, it was good. And as you said, there's there's better things to wait in line for. Hey, Tony Mazzaglia, thank you so much for joining us. And I would like to finish with one little image from Florence from my local expert here. What's a favorite place in Florence for you, for a glass of wine? And uh, what would you eat with it? What would you pair with that? Okay, well, um, I have mentioned the Casa del Vino so many times, I don't want it to seem like that's the only one I love. I will also mention Le Volpi e Luva, which is on the other side of the river. Oh, yeah, you and I went there in the Ultrano. It's just about uh, 100 yards from the end of the uh, Ponte Vecchio. Yes, it's really um, mm. close to the Ponte Vecchio, kind of tucked away. You do have to look for it. And they have absolutely fantastic wines by the glass, a huge selection, and beautiful crostoni so the big crostino, the crostone. little open face sandwiches, mm-hmm. or the little toast sandwiches, and uh, a wonderful uh, wait staff. People that are really young and fun and way yes. into it. It's just a fun scene. And what's the name again, so we can understand it? Le Volpi e Luva. Le Volpi e Luva. Le what does Volpi that mean? Le Volpi e Luva. I know it's not easy. It's the um, foxes and the grapes, and it actually comes from a, like a child's fable. Well, you're a good example of how there is endless discoveries to be made right there in Florence, whether you're into art or whether you're into food or just enjoying Italian culture. Tony Mazzaglia. Rick. (laughs) Enjoy Taste Florence. Thanks for giving so many people a a beautiful taste of Florence and and best wishes. Thank you for inviting me. Ciao. Grazie. There's artistic treasure none can measure here in Florence. Great is every statue looking at you here in Florence. And we've got a lot of terracotta here in Florence. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Find out when other radio stations air Travel with Rick Steves. You can find a list of our affiliates at ricksteves.com slash radio. The Rick Steves Guidebook to Italy has long been America's best-selling guidebook to any destination in Europe. We've just updated it, and it's in its 27th edition, and it's ready and raring to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Pick up a copy at your favorite bookseller or at ricksteves.com.